Welcome back to another episode of the Bodybuilding Down on the Podcast. I am your one of four co-hosts, DC, and I'm joined by three other incredibly talented bodybuilders who enjoy stripping down to just essential levels of body fat to wear a triangle piece of clothing, strike bizarre poses in front of a panel of people we don't know. Jack, Lawrence, DY, I'm going to pass the mic around today and sort of see how everyone's going at this point in time. Maybe give you an update on how training, feeling, lifestyle, anything exciting, sort of up and coming. Let's uh, let's start with you, Jack. What's going on, man? Yeah, so as many of the listeners might know, I'm still undertaking a mini cut. So it's been tomorrow will be exactly three weeks since that began and dropped down now from peak of around 91 and a half down to 87.67 this morning. So a uh, decent amount of weight loss now and definitely noticing the, the visual changes. In fact, I'm probably noticing the visual changes more so than any other change, like not, not as much change in appetite or energy than I would have expected at this point, which is a really great thing. And the, the most assertive and aggressive period of dieting I've ever done, but it's been really good to experience this because uh, I think it's not for everyone. Like not everyone has the luxury to be able to kind of take away. I think it's all, it's about 1500 calories right now from my peak. And obviously some people who are on 2000, 2500 calories, that's not really possible for them, but for me it is. And uh, so far I've enjoyed doing these three weeks just to get it done and dusted real quick. I'm actually uh, probably going to listen to my check-in from AJ after this or tomorrow, depending on when he gets back to me. And it, that'll be the, the golden question is whether I continue dieting and, and still wants me to tighten up a bit more or whether we get to wrap this up now and I can pretty much get back to gaining again. What would be your, your preference? So if you got that check-in, what would you like it to be with regards to this next phase? Do you want to kind of finish it up, clap your hands, finish it up, or do you want to keep pushing on with this current deficit? Yeah, I think it's interesting because I'm not that motivated by the aesthetic or body composition per se. I'm motivated in a sense that I want to get down to a productive level to continue gaining again. And that's pretty much it. Like I don't, even though I'm a bodybuilder, I don't really care how I look at this current body fat. I'm just more interested in the performance that'll come with, with gaining some more weight again. So, and being in a surplus. So yeah, I, I want to get back into a surplus. And I think, I think my body comp at the moment warrants that. Um, and like you guys saw an update from me, uh, probably yesterday on the gram. So I wonder if you guys would agree. Yeah, man, light, light years apart in terms of the physique that you showcased, you know, a year ago versus today. So, and, uh, and I was having a look at how, how lean you are at this point in time. And I think you've, you've obviously opened up a good amount of room to continue gaining from here. So yeah, man, hopefully, hopefully uh, AJ gives you the cows as of today or tomorrow. Yeah. Um, the general is currently eating a pizza, I believe, or it looks like a pizza. This is a bodybuilding podcast, so we're eating some, assuming some cows. But uh, DY, what's going on, man? So last week I wrapped up the uh, deload. So unfortunately, about as interesting as a deload gets, 70% intensity, um, just went for the top end of my rep ranges. Uh, everything went good. I turned out I wasn't actually sick. It was just one to two bad days of just feeling a little average. So um, this week is the uh, first week of the new program. I've only done one to two workouts. They're feeling really good. Um, everything's going really well. I've actually progressed a decent amount on the two workouts. So 
quite happy there, but unfortunately I can't really report too much. Um, this week I will be bumping cows up about another hundred K cows. Uh, I've just noticed that my weight's been holding around about the same. Uh, and obviously I want to drive it up a little bit more alongside with the new program. So I'll be diving into that. And then hopefully next week I can let you guys know, uh, how the, how the program's treating me. Uh, another thing is I also swapped out the incline dumbbells. Turns out my gym doesn't have fifties. So unfortunate there and i've swapped to an incline barbell now for this next six weeks hopefully i can run that for a nice solid half year make a decent amount of progress there and hopefully i'll actually have a protruding chest next stage Ooh, 50s man that's solid and uh the general you've just you've just finished your last bike what's going on man man I've, I've still got a little bit left it is not a pizza though it's a bit of bread because you know pizza that's <laughs> bad food isn't it jack that's the bat of bad food it's the worst you can't get worse yeah. than pizza yeah, so that's very unhealthy. But no, I'm just uh, finishing up the meal a little bit more disorganized than I would usually be today. Sorry, gents. And I, I've overdone it on the chili flakes on the chicken, unfortunately. So I'm struggling here a little bit. But no, all's well on my end, mate. The final week of the mini cut is upon us. And as I was just saying, you guys off air, just starting to creep in a little bit more hunger this week, which I'm actually pretty happy about because then as we move back into the surplus in the weeks coming, I should be able to get the food down pretty easily coming forward. But uh, the sessions have been pretty good this week. Nothing really out of the ordinary. It's sort of at that, sort of at that stage where you're grabbing an extra rep here or there, but I'll be taking the deload next week, which actually coincides quite nicely because it'll be the first week up in food. So it should be a really nice week of recovery before we then progress into the new mesocycle. Nice, man. Yeah. Um, cool. And I guess myself, I started a new training block as of this week. So slight change in terms of the, the training split. Prior to, I was doing three uppers and two lowers with a little bit more of a bias towards uh, posterior chain. And this most recent program, we've kind of, I guess, coined this block a little bit more GPP. So volume is sort of brought up from, from most movements to be quite similar across, across the week. Um, post post mini cut, which for me was quite a few weeks back, but I have noticed that my hunger sensitivity is just... I'm not hungry whatsoever. So it's actually a complete drag at this point in time to be trying to push in uh, more carbs and, and more fats. And uh, yeah, it's interesting because my calories right now are nowhere near what they were in the peak of my improvement season uh, or the peak of my last gaining phase. And my hunger is is, is probably worse. Mm. is <laughs> nowhere near as much as it was at that point, which may have implications to my current levels of meat like i mean i sit on my computer and I, don't, I don't move a hell of a lot throughout the day so that might be uh, a reason as to why that is the case but uh other than that boys not a whole lot to report nothing really overly exciting I might have something exciting to report next week but stay stay tuned for that one well did you end up doing that uh your testing week at all i did do my testing week but i took it pretty easy on my my rdls i definitely didn't load it as to, as to what i felt i could uh, only reason is that it was basically the first week I'd, I'd reintroduced it back in and uh, I just didn't want to reintroduce myself mm. and be, be silly. Um, I feel like sometimes you can take take sets a little bit too far when when uh, when potentially I should listen to my body a little bit more. So yeah, this this training block, I've got some trap bar, trap bar work. So um, I want to start pulling from the floor a little bit more again. So um, introducing that and eventually we'll transition back into a bit more conventional pulls from the floor again. But uh, yeah. Awesome. Jack, quick question, mate. In your dietetics opinion, is there anything else that could be playing into DC's lack of hunger? 
I think, yeah, DC made a good comment about the, his current NEAT levels. And I think potentially a method to upregulate appetite a bit more is by being a bit more active throughout the day, not just around the training window. So that could certainly help. Um, but we know that, I mean, there are some other questions I could ask as well, which I'm sure you guys would resonate with as well, like his current stress levels. And I know he moved house recently, like maybe that might influence his stress, but he do doesn't seem like it. He seems perfectly relaxed. He just doesn't want it bad enough. <laughs> That's exactly the reason. <laughs> no, not well, I've seen Nicole's been cooking some delicious food as well, at least. For you. Yeah, mate, get a bit of the yeah. bacon in. Easy. Yeah, 100%. But um. No, I just think it's more, more, more in line with my, my current need levels. So I, I'm not overly hungry because I'm just not moving a hell of a lot. Whereas uh, prior to moving to this, um, to this new place, I was doing a little bit, bit of walking on the treadmill, doing a little bit of um, cycling as well on the bike, just to try and do some sort of, some sort of cardio. But I've been quite busy lately and I haven't been able to, to factor those into my training days. So definitely my need has dropped and, and therefore, you know, I'm not, I'm, my body doesn't require, I guess, as much total caloric intake. Uh, I, I would conduce to be the, 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 the reason as to why. But um, let's get into the actual topics for today because I think there's some pretty cool ones to get through and sort of a combination between things that we've discussed uh, off air and also you know, some questions that the listeners has posed to us as well within those, um, those questions and polls that we put up, which firstly, thank you for taking the effort to put some questions up for us because it's just fantastic as a means to direct the show towards, um, you know, what you guys or what guys and girls want to listen to. So I actually want to talk a little bit more about the, uh, the difference between training in different muscle lengths. So shortened versus a lengthened position for, uh, for different muscles. And the reason being, I think is because Lawrence put up an awesome post uh, not long ago regarding the difference between basically a seated and a lying hamstring curl. And, uh, and so I'll, I'll sort of throw it over to you, Lawrence, and you can give us a bit of a rundown as to, what, what was your message within within that post? Yeah, so it was actually, I guess, inspired by a study that I was having a bit of a look at. And for anyone who's a super nerd out there like me, it's by Mayo, I think that's how you pronounce it, et al, in 2021. And it was a really cool study because it had a look at, you know, I guess it was actually looking for protection against injury as well was one of the factors that they were assessing. But they also did use MRI to assess muscle volume and hypertrophy and sort of comparing a prone leg curl to a seated leg curl. And the really cool thing about this study is that it was a within-person study. So it was actually a single leg variation that they were doing. And one person did one leg with the prone leg curl and the other leg, they used the seated leg curl. So I guess that's a really nice way to account for any variations within people. Because I reckon there's so much variation between people's morphology and their muscle type fibers and stuff like that. So you could probably reason to say that some people just naturally respond better to training in longer muscle lengths. So this kind of accounted for that, which was really good. And what they found was that between the people where the seated leg curl was used compared to the prone leg curl, the hamstrings actually showed greater hypertrophy when using the seated leg curl, which gets them hypothesizing that there is something about training in that long muscle position and that lengthened position of the hamstring that then correlates to greater hypertrophy, which I think that is starting to become a pretty widely known fact, especially if you're listening to people in the know, people like Brad Schoenfeld, Mike Isertel, these sort of thought leaders in the world of hypertrophy. So 
I just think it's an interesting finding from a study, but I guess the message I was also trying to put in the post is that just because one piece of research finds this as quote unquote optimal doesn't mean that you automatically throw out every single other exercises for the hamstrings because it may not fully lengthen them the same way as a seated hamstring curl. So yes, there is benefits to training in longer muscle lengths, but you don't need to throw the baby out the bathwater and neglect all the other exercises for the hamstrings. Yeah, absolutely. Like I remember there was a study released, a systematic review in 2020 by, by Brad Schoenfeld. Um, and he basically concluded that, yeah, training through a full range of motion may provide better hypertrophy than, uh, than potentially partials. Uh, and this was based more so on, on lower body movements, I believe they tested. And um, so I guess the question then presents, like for, for muscles that are biarticulate, which basically means that they cross both uh, or two joints. So you could look at it as being like in terms of the biceps, like the long head of the biceps, which obviously acts upon both the, the elbow like and the shoulder. Um, another example would be like the, the triceps, uh, the long head there as well. Um, the, the quadriceps, like the rectus femoris, which crosses both the, uh, the hip joint and, uh, and obviously acts upon the patella to, to, to perform the extension. And then in your case, you know, talking about the hamstrings as well, like those muscles there, the long head of the biceps femoris, the semimembranosis and semitendinosis, like would you want to train all these muscle groups in a fully lengthened position all the time? Yeah, and I guess that's where we also need to think about the fatigue element of that because whilst we are going to get a greater amount of stimulus from training in the lengthened position, we're also going to get a greater amount of muscle damage in that as well, especially if we are being very meticulous with our eccentrics because we know that more muscle damage is done in the eccentric portion of a lift. And if you think about these exercises that get us into these lengthened positions, so an SLDL, a seated leg curl, you're pretty smashed after that. So you're probably going to want to reserve one or two exercises like that for the start of your session when you have the energy, when you're not fatigued, when it's easier to get that muscle short from the lengthened position. And then you might then want to include some of the less lengthened position exercises. So maybe if you do want to hit two exercises which are hamstring focused in a leg session, this is something I'm doing right now at the moment, I'll do the seated option first and then the prone option second, because I just know that if I'm going to get to that seated option later in the session, when I'm already fatigued, it's going to be much harder to get that all the way in and all the way short. Yeah, absolutely. So like, I think, like you said, full range of motion definitely causes like more, more muscle damage and potentially doms and soreness right there. So from a programming standpoint, like even if you were wanting to add more volume to a program, you could probably look at it as, okay, if we're going to add, let's say an extra three total working sets, we might be more advantageous to add them in a more shortened position or a shortened loading loading parameter because then uh, the I guess the additional fatigue in which I may induce may not be as as great as if I you know increased it by a, a more of a lengthened base position. So yeah, I definitely think it will depend from a programming standpoint as to like your total your total volume things like that as well. Um, and you can probably even talk about like mobility and movement limitations too. You know, like with some of your your clients, for example, working within the physio space, like you can probably talk about how some of them might not be able to get in a lengthened position or, or what is would be deemed a lengthened position if, for example, they were to lean forward on a seated hamstring curl. Yeah, or even at least not initially. Like if you take something like an SLDL, for example, someone might not have the hamstring muscle length or even the length in the spinal erectors initially to get into that position where the plates are touching the ground. But 
the only way to then improve that is to keep doing it and do it in a graduated graded way because at the end of the day like a static stretch of the hamstrings might help reduce that perceived stiffness, but it's not going to actually improve tissue length. Loading them and stretching them eccentrically under load over time is the only thing that's actually going to improve that tissue length and allow you to do it. But the whole full ROM thing, I think is an interesting one as well. And I might throw over to one of the other boys to follow up this. But if you look at someone like Mike Isretel, for example, and on the leg press and on the squat, he is getting down really as low as physically possible before he's then completing the concentric phase. And like anything, I think there's a middle ground. And I personally think on some exercises, he takes it to that extreme where maybe it's just starting to be a bit overkill, but I'd be interested to hear about maybe Jack, what you'd have to say about that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's definitely a medium there and it's tough for me to argue against Dr. Mike because without a doubt, he knows a thing or two more than me. And there are a couple of things because I actually had this conversation with one of my clients who will probably actually listen to this as well. And we even brought up Dr. Mike and a few things that like I, I, I mentioned to my client is that one, what other muscle groups are you using uh, in addition to the, the primary muscle group? Like if you do a huge range of motion on a leg press, are you, is the quadriceps at the end of that range of motion still the target muscle or does it turn into the adductors or the glutes? Um, and also, is it safe? Like often that phrase, active range of motion gets thrown around. Like what is the active range of motion? If they try and go beyond that, is that going to increase their risk of injury? Um, which I'm sure DC and, and Lawrence, you could probably know more than me about given your professions. Yeah, I guess there's no like good or bad movement is there really. Like you can't really coin a movement as good or bad. It's really specific to the individual, like their own limitations and mobility and things like that. So I mean, taking it away from our sport within bodybuilding, like look at Olympic weightlifting, you know, like the, the ranges of motion in which they need to promote in order to execute their movement, like a snatch. You'd have a bodybuilder who would look at someone performing a snatch and go, that's so bad for your shoulders. Look at that range of motion. But it's like, hang on, this person's been training within this range for X amount of years. Like they're capable of performing that degree of, uh, of internal and external rotation. So yeah, I think for someone like, Mike Israel, like maybe he can handle those those sorts of ranges, and that's fantastic. But for someone else who might be, let's say, listening to this podcast, they give that a go, and they they pinch their they pinch their hip in the bottom of the hole, and it's like, oh, this is not this is not comfortable for me. Yeah, and like anything, it's just about grading it over time. Like the only way, for example, one of the common questions, you know, people might see me on the paused Smith or on the leg press and go, oh, like I wish my ankle mobility was that good, like what's the secret and it's like well Wish I had glutes like that yeah yeah well that's that's an entirely different debate mate that's on only uh only fans for the general but yeah it's like one of those things it's like the only way you're going to be able to achieve that is by practicing you know actually allowing yourself to get into that range of motion and if you look at my leg presses from three years ago they don't look anywhere near as full rom because i just didn't have the expertise yet i didn't have the practice to then get into those positions so it's not going to happen overnight you're not inherently blessed with you know perfect squatting technique it takes years to build those things yeah i think um another sort of perspective to look at it is often training more more shortened positions might be able to create like better tension awareness as well so um, like, like we talked about last week about the whole like iliac pull. Um, and I think it's because like peak, peak tension is, um, is in the most shortened position of that, of that particular row. So it's like, you can really feel the lats firing, right? 
but we know that sort of loading within a more lengthened position tends to be more advantageous for hypertrophy. So like, it's interesting the sort of the difference between perception and around if my, if I'm training, let's say I'm doing a preacher curl, like I'm doing, and I can, I can definitely feel my bicep being fully shortened in a preacher because I've also got shoulder flexion going on. And then I compare that to performing a bicep curl where I'm sitting on a bench on an incline and I've got my, you know, elbow behind me and I'm performing my curl. I'm, I'm training it more through or particularly the long head through that, that greater range of motion, but I'm not going to get that same degree of perhaps tension awareness and contractility or peak contractility that I would. It's interesting that a lot of people would then coin like a picture girl is like, oh, I can feel that more. Like it's, it's going to work my biceps better. So I think it can kind of work both ways in terms of people sitting on too much on the fence of like range of motion and end range, uh, you know, performing these movements. And then people who sit on the fence of, of, uh, of basically will sit on the side where it's like, no, man, like you've got to fully shorten this movement, just feel that contraction and, and you're going to get the best out of this. Same goes for like the uh, glute thrust as well. Like, you know, you, you obviously, when you're in a glute thrust, you feel your glutes so much more than maybe what you might in like an RDL. But does that mean that you completely throw away the RDL in all lengthened positions? Uh, maybe not. Like, I remember there was a study where Brett Contreras, I believe, did where like you would get more like EMG response from a glute thrust than you would on an RDL. Does that mean that you only do glute thrust from now on? Like you never do an, a hinge or a squat pattern? Uh, definitely not. So I think there's like that fine, like middle ground as well. Like you need a little bit of everything. Like you just can't have everything in the lengthened position, but then you can't have everything in the shortened position either. Like, you know, like what Lawrence said, like maybe go for the lengthened position first and then swapping over to a shortened position. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think another example would almost be like, performing a pin loaded leg extension and like i don't know about you but i haven't i've never been to a gym where the leg extension reclines and i can sit back so i can fully lengthen my rectus femoris so if i then thought oh well hey leg extensions are not training my rec fem throughout the full range of motion i'm not going to worry about it i'm going to try and sub it for perhaps a, a knee extension or a leg extension by which my hips in an extended position and i use like a cable i attach the cable up high and i do like an eric helms you know, leg, like the knee, knee extension, uh, I, I don't feel as though the, the load will be sufficient because you're, you're, you're really trying to stabilize your knee. You're basically suspending yourself in a standing position while you're trying to perform it. So I think some movements, it's very kind of like muscle dependent, movement dependent as to whether it, it would be advantageous to, to perform this in either a, a shortened or, or a lengthened position. Same goes for like even like the Tom Platt sissy squat where he's like hips are far more forward. So then therefore like technically you're going to get more like tension in the lengthened position than what you would on a hack squat. Does that mean that you only do sissy squats or like, you know, something like that compared to a barbell back squat, then, you know, yeah, you yeah. probably, most people won't. <laughs> yeah. DC, if I could just chime in there, it's interesting you use the example of the rec fem. And if we're just going to completely nerd out here, we might as well go in, but they look at, you know, studies where they're going to assess like quad hypertrophy through a range of different exercises. And often the case is that the people who, let's say they look at squats and leg extensions, plus just squats alone, like the people who do leg extensions often have much greater hypertrophy in the rec fem because a part of how we actually do a squat is by having the rec fem inhibited a little bit because that's what then allows the hamstrings to assist us a little bit and the glutes to assist us with actually extending through the hips so that's why the seated leg extension is going to be favorable so you can actually hit that rec fem 
But then, you know, you think about the exercise in itself and while you're in hip flexion, so you're not stretching that muscle out as much as you can. And it's interesting now that we're starting to see a few people online who are actually performing active hip flexion against resistance as an exercise. Like I think I saw Kasim doing them. I think I saw one of the boys from Natty News Daily doing them as well. And yeah, it's just interesting to see how, you know, it looks kind of like a rehabby exercise. Like conventionally, you wouldn't see a bodybuilder doing hip flexion against resistance. But I guess the rationale that you are wanting to work on that rec fem a little bit is probably not a bad one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. It's interesting how trends kind of change over time, right? In, in this sort of space. That's kind of everything I wanted to talk about in that, in that sense. Is there anything that you guys wanted to add additionally about that particular topic? I would just be interested to see um, if they were to maybe do one where it was uh, like fully lengthened position and then a shortened and a length, lengthened position and then compare the two. So obviously like they use like the, the uh, seated hamstring curl there, but then maybe doing a lying hamstring curl and a seated for one leg and then maybe doing straight seated for the other and then comparing the two at the end. I'm not going to tell these guys how to do the studies. I don't know if there even is a study out there because I know how much these studies cost, but like it would be quite interesting to see, you know, both of them utilize versus just one and comparing the differences there. Yeah, absolutely. What do, what do you do? Uh, I can see your your brain ticking over, Lawrence. Oh, no, I was just I was just uh, thinking. I can see it now in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Yates et al. Uh, you can see him <laughs> funding the study. There you go. I'd have to trade in the Audi for that, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the I rest did... of these studies might only pay for about half the study. I did want to bring up one other topic, which I think. Is, is very much related to what we were talking about. And that's like the, the notion of chasing sensation or having those uh, people who do a movement, let's say an RDL, because that's a super popular one that I get. And a client of mine will do an RDL and then message me saying, hey, Jack, I didn't get a great connection with my hamstrings during the RDL. And often I give them that explanation of like chasing sensation overload in a particular exercise and having that balance between feeling that sensation but that sensation per se isn't necessarily correlated with hypertrophy especially for movements like an rdl where there are other factors involved compared to something like a leg extension where if someone didn't feel their quads in a leg extension that would be a bit more of an issue what are your guys thoughts on that yeah i agree with that one i think it's um leading down a misleading misled path if you're just trying to follow the feeling of sensation within certain movements because like, for example, if we're, we're talking about the topic of like mechanical tension, if we were to look at performing a, let's say a, a weighted pull up and, you know, a really heavy weighted pull up, the amount of like tension awareness we're going to get in the lats, particularly if we're performing this for like three, four, five reps, you're probably not only going to feel your lats, you're probably going to feel like everything, your biceps, your rear delts, your lats, you feel your abs engaged because you've got to be pulling the weight up. There's a small dog in your, uh, in your picture there, D.Y. <laughs> Two small dogs. Yeah. And then you compare that to something like, you know, an iliac, an iliac pull, and you might feel that lat being engaged in isolation so much more. But that doesn't necessarily translate to, okay, the iliac pull is so much of a better exercise because I can feel my lats working more. I can guarantee you the tension or the tension, mechanical tension that you're creating through that, that pull up is going to be like more than enough of a stimulus. Mm. Yeah. The only thing I'd add to that is I think 
the exercises which involve more muscle groups are going to fit into that bill of we're not necessarily going to finish a bubble back squat or an RDL or a conventional deadlift and go, Oof, I'm really burning in one spot. And I think as we move down that continuum closer towards these isolation exercises, that's when we are probably using feel and stimulus and disruption as a better metric of whether or not we are moving correctly on that exercise. But I think for a lot of your compound stuff at the start of the session, if you're not feeling a, a huge burn in just one spot, I don't necessarily think that means you're not using that muscle because you know something has to move it for you. And if your technique is sound, it's going to be the tissues you're trying to target. Yeah, I think just to wrap up, like the from my own personal experience, the the burden on the CNS, the central nervous system, like if you're squatting something and it's you're going to zero reps in reserve, I don't think you're too focused on your quads at that point in time. You're more so focused on just getting the load up, which certainly does a good job of distracting you. Yeah, absolutely. And you could almost talk about certain energy systems being used within a movement and it's also it's 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 target rep range in which you're working. So, you know, if let's say for example you're working towards a zero reps in reserve doing a back squat and you're performing reps of 5, like well you're probably going to stop because the move the weight just doesn't move whereas if you're doing an AMRAP with a, you know, much lower, lower weight on a back squat, you're probably going to stop because it's more like the burn that you're feeling through your quadriceps, right? So even then it's like, oh, I've got better tension awareness in my quads because I'm getting more of a pump and all these sort of superficial, you know, sensations. And it's like, well, that's actually not really the case. Like mm. both have their, have their place here. Cool. I think we can kind of wrap, wrap up that topic. The, uh, the second topic that I wanted to introduce, and this was actually based on one of the questions in the poll. I thought this was a fantastic question. Basically, should you decrease volume if you get deep within a hefty deficit to basically prevent uh, the occurrence of injury? So I'll let uh, I'll let DY start with this one, and um, yeah, and then we'll sort of uh, push it around. It depends on the individual because at the start of the prep, you might even be able to like increase volume for like the first six, maybe 10 weeks, but towards the back end of prep, you're not going to be able to do that. Like there's no way you're going to be able to keep your performance and then continually add volume unless you start off with some astronomically low sets per muscle group uh, at the start of prep. So um, normally on the back end, you find yourself scaling down the um, total volume. But that being said, like you can also add in some other things that maybe like for me, I'm a big fan of like blood flow restriction, especially on the back end of prep for the stuff like quads and arms. So like, you know, for these muscle groups, instead of doing another two sets of leg press, you can throw in some blood flow restriction band there, you know, decrease the risk of injury as well, uh, especially when you're like really on the back end of prep. So you wouldn't really be increasing it, but me personally, I do normally taper off some of the working sets on, let's say like squats and maybe leg press or like some of these big lifts, like deadlifts and RDLs on the back end. But then I might, if I'm not going to totally reduce the volume, I might give it to somewhere else. So like, let's say like the blood flow restriction band. So like I might pull a little bit of volume from the squats and the leg press, but then I might throw in something like a blood flow restriction leg extension. So then therefore they're getting still like adequate stimulus um with the reduced injury risk as well yeah i completely agree i think one it is individual based like some people can just tolerate higher loads than others especially people who aren't quite as strong they can typically do more volume because they don't create as much disruption or fatigue and 
something also that's important to remember in a prep is that like the main goal is to maintain muscularity. Like we're not trying to grow any muscle at that point in prep. So we also know that the, the volume required to maintain muscularity is much lower than what we need to grow it. So in, in light of that, it, it makes sense to not really be increasing volume um, and maybe only increasing volume, in my opinion, like uh, in uh, situations like DY mentioned. So for particular exercises, which don't generate excessive amounts of fatigue or doesn't limit your recovery. So interestingly, like my first ever prep, I actually did very, very high volume. That was an interesting experience because like I was given... I won't quote numbers just because it's unique to me, but I was given a, a decent number of sets of squats and, and leg press in, in, in leg sessions, which I, I'll be honest, I didn't enjoy because it was a lot of, for me to deal with psychologically and mentally. And sometimes it's nicer just to head in there, have like two or three sets written down for those bigger lifts and pump them out, give it your best rather than doing three plus sets. I also noticed when I was doing a, because uh, my first prep was kind of similar to you, Jack, where it was like a lot more sets of like squats and deadlifts than what I did on my last prep. And I noticed quite severe performance drop-offs because of that. Like, you know, as you get deeper into prep, you're not going to have as much energy. So that energy going into like, let's say five sets of barbell back squats compared to when you start the prep is going to be a lot different. Then it's going to affect your other like, you know, exercises. So maybe dialing down some of the heavier working sets on the back end to then, you know, return some of that performance and like you know trying to keep as much performance as possible you know if you maybe have to decrease a little bit of volume to do that then you know i think that could be quite advantageous for sure yeah one of the things that you mentioned there was um you know the amount of volume that you need to and this was you jack um the amount of volume that you need to basically you know hold on to to, to lean tissue i guess that's that mv which is that maintainable maintainable volume would you say, and your thoughts on this, just generally all of us, would you think that your maintainable volume, the amount of volume you need to perform to maintain your lean tissue would be greater within the, the, the means of like the, the low energy availability that we've got within the contest prep? So I know that there's been like literature that's looked at the uh, basically the, like the minimum effective dose or like what's what you could what you could do to just maintain the tissue that you've got and it's it's actually pretty low it's like one third of the total volume that you're you're acclimated to and i would almost say that those studies have been done within well-fed individuals and it's unlikely that the application of this to someone within a contest prep phase who might be sub 10 weeks sub five weeks i would almost argue that perhaps the amount of volume that you would need within those phases might be higher higher than what you would if you were well-fed yeah. And I think it's probably similar to like the protein debate as well, like a similar sort of concept, you know, people like Eric Helms will often recommend actually raising your protein intake as you're in the deficit in order to support maintaining as much tissue as possible. So getting down that low in the volume, I just can't imagine would be advantageous. And like you said, drawing back to the injury risk thing as well, we just don't have data on people who are five weeks out and how that actually affects their ability to get injured. And I know that some people will say, you know, eight weeks out, they'll take out deadlifting, they'll take out squatting because they are these, in inverted commas, dangerous movements. And I think I don't like to paint an exercise as dangerous or safe because I think injury risk and injuries in general are far more complex than that. But the reality is, is we just don't know for sure. We don't have enough research to say, okay, this is what happens when you are at essential levels of body fat because I think we can all agree 
when you are lighter like that and when you're holding on to you know very minute amounts of body fat you just feel like a more fragile person and why that is i don't know if we can say concrete i think there's a lot of things that go into that i think there'd be a big psychological component to just feeling that light feeling that tired all the time i think that would be a big part of it but yeah i think there's always going to need to be a decent amount of volume and i certainly wouldn't say that you would want to drop it to like a third like you were saying dc yeah absolutely i think you'd be strategic about when you would look to to drop your volume down so if you were implementing something like a deload something along the lines of that to try and wash out some sort of fatigue you might you might put forth a a, a week by which you know you reduce the amount of sets that you're performing but um yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think ideally, like we need to give a reason for our muscles to stick around. Like that's, that's ultimately the goal within a contest prep. And like, I know that John Feld did a study in 2016 that basically looked at like hypertrophy as being like a dose response. So, you know, too little, it's like that Goldilocks principle where like too little, not enough, too much. And then there's basically that kind of sweet spot down in the middle. And, and that's where basically like people like doc, uh, Dr. Mike, you know, Israel comes up with these sort of volume landmarks, which I'm sure you guys have looked into a little bit as well in terms of like your MRV, which is, you know, that maximum recoverable volume. Um, you've got sort of MAV as well, which is maximum adaptable volume. And you'd pretty much be wanting to spend most of your time within that sort of space. But I would say that these landmarks, like they change in a contest prep, particularly during the periods of, of, of low energy availability. So what is your, let's say, MRV, which on paper might be 25 plus sets per muscle group. It could be 15 sets like in within a contest prep. So you're not going to be able to recover as well because obviously the state of sleep deprivation, low energy availability. And, uh, but I think all of this is basically guided by the individual. Like if you're wearing the coach's hat, for example, like Dan, if someone comes to you and they're like, hey man, like my, my back's been in all sorts since I've been performing these RDLs. I've been doing four sets of this. By the fourth set, my back's just not feeling fantastic. What should I be doing? Like the first thing you're going to think of is let's probably reduce the number of working sets that you're performing with this movement. What do you guys think? I'm not training hard enough. We need to increase the sets. Nah, I'm, obviously <laughs> I'm joking, but like, yeah, like you said, like reducing some of the actual working sets, like if they're doing four working sets, but then the performance is dropping off hugely, especially on other parts of the workout, then I think the four working sets might be a little bit too much. Another thing also is when you, you're in prep, let's say you might lose 15, 20% of your body weight, but then you're keeping the volume the exact same the entire time. You're not reducing that the volume by 15 to 20% as well. So it can be a lot more tax on the body especially in that calorie depleted state so like you know you might be even able to drop total volume but keep a lot of the lifts the same uh if you play the volume a little bit more safe and conservative hmm. i guess you could that also being... even change exercise selection as well right because there's, hmm. there's many different variables that you could essentially manipulate within a contest prep to get your desired outcome it's kind of like the mixer analogy like you you increase intensity you might have to decrease volume a little bit you increase you know, volume and might have to decrease intensity a little bit. Like all of these have a interplayed uh, relationship between one another. So there's a certain movement like barbell RDLs is not creating a favorable sort of stimulus to fatigue ratio for you. Maybe it's at that point where just the movement doesn't gel well. Maybe I need to drop this back and perform this as an RDL or I need to pull this back and perform this as a trap bar or something along those lines. 
You could also even do stuff like maybe swapping one of the sets for maybe a more stable movement. So instead of doing a dumbbell flat bench, you can maybe swap to like a hammer strength flat bench. So then therefore you're taking out more of the stabilizers, especially as you get on the back end of prep. Yeah, absolutely. Did you guys experience that at all within your contest preps? So there were like certain movements that you were like, oh, I just don't want to do this anymore. I need to change this. Yeah, for me, it was dead. Sorry, for me, it was deadlifts. Like I remember it like I pretty much kept the same amount of sets the entire way through the deadlift in uh, like through the entire prep um, of deadlifts. But then on the back end, like I think it was the last week we dropped off a working set of each. But that said, by the end of prep, I was completely done with deadlifts. That's why I had pretty much like a whole six week training block after like a recovery program where the deadlifts weren't even in there and same with bench because i ran bench through the entire prep as well so i just kind of needed a break from those what about you jack was there anything in your in your contest prep in terms of the movement selection that you were like no i just can't do this anymore yeah i think looking back i was i'm a pretty stubborn person and especially since i was doing my own programming at the time like I just, I was very, very persistent, but definitely the barbell back squat. I actually subbed that out at, at 10 weeks out and I switched to a Smith machine back squat and then I switched to a hack squat. Uh, and like, even now I still don't do the barbell back squat because it's, I don't think it's a very efficient movement for me. Um, there's probably a better technical way of explaining that, but I much prefer the hack squat and the leg press. But uh, in terms of the RDL, like that would also be one for most people, which they would be inclined to change, but it's, it's just a super efficient movement for me. So fortunately I was able to keep that one in. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, Lawrence? Yeah, for me, similar, the barbell back squat was definitely one that I actually initially subbed out because I was having a bit of an AC joint issue and the bar sort of sitting on my shoulder there was irritating it a little bit and then went on to the Cybex hack and even that, towards the end of prep just absolutely beats you down like it's a really tough piece but i do think that you know whilst we need to consider like your overall recovery and yes if something is beating you down to the point where you're then not recovering for the next session yes maybe we need to do we need to sub up those movements i think that's very reasonable but i also don't want the listeners to get it confused like prep is freaking hard and it is really difficult to train when you're three weeks out when all you can think about is food and the motivation to train starts to wane a bit. But if you can reach into that extra store of grit and fight, and you can really still push through those compounds, you can still do your RDLs, you can still do your deadlifts. It might really suck and it might be really hard, but at the end of the day, those are the people who are gonna have the most tissue retained on their physiques by the time it comes time to stand on stage. So whilst I'm 100% on board with changing your exercises, if it is just putting you in a hole of recovery that you can't climb out of, it is also important to show a bit of grit, show a few minerals and, and really embrace the suck because training at the end of prep is freaking hard. Uh, there's no denying that. It's, it, it's, it's, it's a tough one because, you know, you want to try and get the most out of your training in terms of exercise selection, but like there comes a point where every single movement will be challenging <laughs> no matter what, even if it's a pin loaded, pin loaded chest press, it's going to feel damn hard to like rep beat, basically bend down, put that pin in the appropriate load, sit down on the chair, reach for the handles, <laughs> like all of these small things, even walking up the set of stairs to get to the machine loaded machine in which you wish to use. Like, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. I completely agree with that. All right, boys, let's kind of change the, I guess the topic from training to more sort of nutrition, I guess. And I guess this is where Jack, you might have some really good input in relation to this, but it was one of the questions that we had within our poll and it was basically the use of diet foods within a contest prep. 
you know, yay, nay, what are our thoughts with regards to this? Because I think it's, it's you know, you think of a contest prep and diet foods and that these two things should go synonymously with one another. Uh, so it'd be interesting to know what everyone's thoughts is in regards to this anecdotally, like experiences that you've had yourselves, experiences that you've had with your clients and, uh, and yeah. So Jack, I'll get you to take the floor with this one. Yeah, so I think first, like it's important to define what diet foods are. And I think like there are two different sides to this, like side one could be, okay, these are the more artificial foods that are used. And when I say artificial, I mean, okay, they might have some artificial sweeteners in them, like sugar alcohols or stevia, aspartame, and they're low in calories, they, they might be quite voluminous. So they're ideal for dieting per se. Uh, and then the other side of the picture is also diet foods, which are uh, whole foods. So like a big bowl of salad could technically be a diet food because it's, it's very voluminous. It fills you up, but it's also low in calories as well. And I think to be honest, like both of these have some positives, uh, but both of them have some negatives as well. And I think something that's super important, um, which, and I'll start on this point because not everyone thinks about it, um, is the actual getting an accurate scale weight at the end of prep is super hard, especially when you incorporate a lot of diet foods, because it does fluctuate your weight a lot, especially if you're consuming lots of vegetables, as I kind of talked about last episode, um, all that dietary fiber, if, especially if you're not keeping it consistent, one day you might've uh, 30 grams, one day you might've 80 grams, um, influences your digestion. And sometimes your scale weight will vary up to like a kilo every single day. And, and therefore you're still relying on that weekly average, but even then, I mean, you kind of relying even more on the visual aspect, which is of course like super important towards the end phase of prep. Um, and then the, the flip side, which is basically the same argument is of course uh, the, the more artificial foods, which some of them won't influence people at all. Like, like how many people exclude protein powder um, towards the end of a prep? Like not many, I would say compared to something like uh, sugar-free maple syrup, which I mean, I get my clients to exclude things like sugar-free maple syrup towards the end because they contain sugar alcohols. They will disrupt people's body weights, in my opinion. And I've even had some clients where they've been unresponsive for like two or three weeks. And then I'll say, hey, let's cut out all artifi like artificial foods per se. So sugar-free maple syrup. Let's do even like the zero-calorie monsters, all of that. Let's keep it super simple, as simple as possible. And believe it or not, they, they drop weight, even though we have, technically haven't changed caloric input so there's definitely a few things to um, investigate there for you guys yeah i definitely think so and i'm i'm in a similar position to you jack in terms of trying to omit majority majority of these foods like like you said the sugar-free maple which for a lot of these foods that contain polyols which is essentially like a, a, a they coined as a, a sugar alcohol it's basically like a hydrogenated carbohydrate um like these things are not free, right? <laughs> Nothing that you consume is essentially free calories. And I do believe that that even a food that contains less than 10 grams of a polyol per serve can be considered a free food or basically advertised as a free food. So it can be like incredibly misleading because essentially polyols is an example. This is like malitol, xylitol, urethritol. Most of them do contain anywhere between two to three grams or two to three calories per gram. So it's not, it's not free at all. Mm. And nutrition labels can be incredibly misleading when it says, 
you know, zero carbohydrates and it's got zero, zero fat and zero protein, but then you look at its sorbitol content and it's got like eight grams of sorbitol. And it's like, okay, well, this actually still does have calories, right? So yeah, I think, you know, it might be a gram of carb here, a gram of carb there, but, but if you're having multiple servings of diet-free foods every single day, like these things add up. And just like you've said, where it comes down to uh, disruptions with body weight trends, which tends to occur towards sort of the tail end of a contest prep anyway, just because of so many hormonal changes and, and shifts and things like that, shifts to food volume, all that sort of stuff as well. But, you know, to try and measure and manipulate as many variables as possible and control for these things, I often think that the fight to try and be somewhat satiated with the use of like sugar-free maple, like this is not really even going to help you in terms of feeling more satiated, you know, adding 20 mils of of uh, maple syrup to your oats in the morning it's more of a craving thing it's a food focused thing so i think like you said we're coming back to the whole like embrace the suck from a training side of things like you've also got to do that from a dieting side of things as well yeah I mean, so like don't be, uh, yeah. sorry i was just gonna say don't be that person who's making a bowl of fit lardo and sugar-free jelly and drowning it in your queen's maple syrup by the end of the night because it's going to do nothing more than make you even more food focused increase your cravings even more I think that's just when you need to actually stick to the less palatable foods because at least you're just going to eat it. It's going to be good anyway because your taste buds think that everything's good in prep and try and limit yourself. Like I know that when I'm in prep and I'm you know wanting to have like a sugar-free soft drink, like a Pepsi Max or something with dinner, like in previous preps, I would have just absolutely guzzled it down. Whereas in later preps, in order to just control for that a little bit, I would just say, okay, I'm not going to have them during the day, even though I might want a little bit of bubbles in the stomach just to kind of taste something and have something to fill me up. I'm just going to limit myself to one can of Pepsi Max with dinner. And that will be my little mini treat in prep for the day. So I think just giving yourself a bit of a limit with these things, because it is very easy to overdo it. Yeah, I like what you said there, like setting like a limit. Like I remember, it also depends on what you classify as diet foods. Like are you classifying diet foods as like what Jack said, like fruit and veggies, or are you classifying the diet foods as like sugar-free stuff? For me personally, I just block out sugar-free stuff for all my clients in prep because as you get lower in cows, the ratio of sugar-free stuff to the calories tends to just go up. And then therefore it causes like GI issues. I know, especially with since a large amount of my uh, clients of girls so obviously the cows need to get lower but then not only that the sugar-free stuff also causes a lot of gi issues like you you can you can tell them go smash down two muscle nation protein bars they'll shit their pants within the hour and it's like they're walking around bloated so it's like a lot of this stuff like like with the sugar alcohols doesn't really aid in anything like sure it might be a little bit sweeter or something like that on your oats but realistically it's not going to do you any benefits on the back end of prep um, so that's why I tend to just kind of just say, Hey, just don't worry about sugar alcohols. If my, in my opinion, if you, if you can't do a prep without 10 mils of sugar, uh, sugar alcohols on your oats, then you're probably doing a wrong prep. That being said, I know Dean McKillop also uses like sugar-free syrup on his oats for breakfast. That being said, his cows are going to be a lot higher than probably what my girls are. And I'm not going to tell one person, Hey, you can have sugar alcohols. And then the next one saying that you can't, cause it just, you know, it's a little bit unfair. So I just kind of say like, Hey, like, let's just cut the sugar alcohols out from the start. Let's leave it there. You know, if you want to utilize fruits, veggies and stuff like that, go for it. But in terms of the straight sugar, sugar alcohols like the malatol the ethritol and all that stuff that actually do have calories i kind of just say hey don't even bother with it 
plus a lot of people also track them incorrectly as well. So like they might be tracking, like, you know, they might be not tracking the sugar alcohols that are in the protein bars that they're consuming. So they're consuming an extra like 20 carbs worth of sugar alcohol. So then therefore it can also cause issues with like calories on their, my fitness pal and how they're correctly tracking them. And then next thing you know, they're bloated and it just causes a bunch of issues and issues that you don't really want in prep either. Absolutely. I've got a, uh, a quick story about the, the sugar alcohols as well. It was my very first prep. And I remember because I was at school, but Gemma had the day off and she like drove past my school and she was like, oh, I've got a surprise for you. And she dropped off a bag of the sugar-free lollies. And I was like, how good's this? Like a little bit of a treat while I'm in prep, while I'm dieting. Obviously didn't have a scale with me on the lunchtime area where I used to sit at school. So I just thought like, oh, they've got barely anything in them. I'll just eat the whole bag. Goodness me, that day at the training, man, that day at the gym, I've never felt so uncomfortable. And the smell that was coming out of my body, I thought I was going to die. Like, I honestly <laughs> could not believe it. Probably every orifice of your body. <laughs> mate, One in it particular. Was so bad. And I remember that day, like, it was at the point where, like, I was on one machine and it just, it just came out of me. And a guy actually walked past and he was like, oh, did someone fart in here? And I was like, oh, I don't know, man. Like, no, I don't know. And I was so embarrassed. It was like, more than a fart, I'm assuming. <laughs> oh, mate. It was so, so bad. Here you are, like, waddling to the toilet straight after this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny yeah. you said that because I've got kind of a similar story. Like, when Alana was in prep, I believe it was the, I think it was 2018. Like, sugar alcohols weren't really a thing that, like, they were coming out a little bit. Like, we didn't really know too much about it about them and they were like in protein bars and all this and like you know lani would be sitting there eating like a protein bar or maybe two a day like we didn't even know about them and the next thing you know she was like so bloated all the time had huge like gi discomfort and stuff like that and we actually went to like um a gut like you know a gut specialist and all that and they didn't even know they were like oh we're going to go through like all these scans and everything like that then we realized how many sugar alcohols they were actually consuming pretty much after the prep she looked great while she uh did her peak weeks because we just cut out all the artificial stuff so every peak week she looked amazing but just every week prior to that or even all the way through prep she was just so bloated and like we had to go to doctors and everything and we just couldn't put our finger on it and just turns out it was just like it was just that consumption of uh sugar alcohols and yeah mm. as Lawrence said the farts get pretty nasty so i was about to have to kick her out <laughs> I yeah, feel like if, it, if it sounds too good to be true then chances are it is you know and that's when it that's what it comes down to with these uh, diet foods like i just think it's 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 barking up the wrong tree that's it's not what you should be investing your time in is trying to satiate yourself with these sorts of foods at all yeah yeah it's just reinforcing your food focus and every single time you you have that you just crave it more for next time and it kind of like a dog chasing its tail and it's also harder post comp as well because you're used to that high palatability and it makes that when appetite's potentially even higher post comp you don't have that immediate goal of stepping on stage you then got to work through that again yeah absolutely i think it's important for us to to also just paint the picture that we don't think that like sugar-free foods are bad and like mm. all together, it's always going to be like, it's the dosage that's the poison, right? So yeah. if you're someone who has a small amount of sugar-free maple on your oats in the morning and you have no GI upsets and you're totally fine with it and you track it correctly, there's no harm in that whatsoever. You know, same with sugar-free jelly or something like that. As long as you track it, it has protein in it. It's probably not the best source of protein. It's a bit more of a dipeptide. So the amino acid profile is not that fantastic, but 
you know, you, you, you essentially use these strategies to somewhat mitigate the, the dieting effects. And if it helps you and you can get through it, that's fine. But if you're someone that's, yeah, eating 100 grams of sorbitol, <laughs> sorbitol a day, good luck. I don't want to hang around you. <laughs> yeah, Do you guys have anything else to add into that? Not really, just the general, like what you said, like I, we're speaking to a very, very specific population here of comp prep athletes. So we can get away of saying a lot of things that I wouldn't say to a general population person who is trying to diet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What do you think, boys? Do we have time for another topic or is we kind of getting towards the end of this? Yeah, let's go maybe a lighthearted one. I feel like today's been in the weeds. It's good though. I like nerding out with you guys, but let's maybe go for a couple of fun ones. Absolutely. Have you guys got any fun questions that you can answer? You can ask us. I know one of the questions that we had was, you know, aside from the compound movements that we talked about in, in sort of prior podcasts, you know, what we would like to, to, to hold on to if we could only perform, let's say three movements, what are some accessory stuff that we would like to, to hold on to if we could only perform three, you know, I guess there's nothing as, as an accessory movement in bodybuilding, but what would those, what would those movements be? Let's start yeah. with you, Jack. Well, I think the question was other than like squat, bench and dead, like what movements would be your top three, I think, if yeah. we'll go with that. Yeah. So, I mean, technically the RDL isn't a deadlift. Like it's not a conventional deadlift. So I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll go, I'll go with that as number one. And number two would have to be just because of the meme, I'll, I'll pick the iliac pull down. And <laughs> number three would probably be something like a machine lateral raise off the top of my head. What about you, what about Lawrence? You? What about you, uh, Lawrence? Yeah. Yeah, I reckon, look, if we can only do these three, maybe we're not competing anyway. So we're just going to go for a bit of a well-rounded physique. I'll probably say leg extension, some sort of chest fly, if we've already got the bench in there, and then a T-bar row or something like that. For me, it would probably have to be like a dumbbell incline uh, chest press get a little bit of chest, a little bit of delts, and then something for the back, maybe like a bent over row, I'd say. And then maybe quads, like a lower body, you could probably go for like a hack squat. So those would probably be mine. I would probably say a uh, plate loaded mid row for, for the back. I think that it's one of my favorite pieces for rowing. Um, I'd probably also go like a standing cable chest fly as well. And I'd probably have to say the leg extension as well. Yeah. Awesome. In interesting choices. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we're all kind of screwed at that point anyway, so might as well have fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> I guess when you step on stage, Jack will be the only one with some good glutes and hammies by keeping them RDLs in. But that's if he ever competes again. Mm. Yeah, that is true. I'm just waiting for a study to come out to say that the uh, barbell RDLs are shit and just crush his dreams. <laughs> his love for them will go down the drain. <laughs> I think my love with them is correlated with me actually being a decent lift for me. So if I, were, if I was lifting 100 kilos for them, I, I probably wouldn't love them so much. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, exactly. All right, boys. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up another episode of the, uh, the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. Thanks again for joining us today. If you love today's episode, remember to give us a subscribe and a five-star review, which I believe is the only option We'll certainly see you in the next episode and uh, peace.